Welcome to Tuber Talk, Canada's potato podcast. Tuber Talk is produced by Potatoes in Canada magazine. You've tuned in to hear about the people and the ideas making a difference in the Canadian potato industry. Have you worked with, been mentored by, or been inspired by a woman in agriculture? The Influential Women in Canadian Agriculture program is back for 2022, and we want to hear from you. Presented by the agriculture brands at Annex Business Media, IWCA will honor six women who are making a difference in Canada's agriculture sector, whether they're producers, researchers, educators, advocates, entrepreneurs, or more. Through articles, podcasts, and a half-day virtual summit in the fall, we will tell their stories and pass along their advice for the next generation of women in agriculture. Go to agwomen.ca to nominate an influential woman today. That's A-G-W-O-M-E-N dot C-A. Welcome, everyone. My name is Dylan Shirley, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. Today, I'm joined by two research scientists, first being Dr. Chandra Moffat. She is based out of the Summerlin Research and Development Center with Agriculture and Agri-Fruits Canada. And our second guest is Dr. Ian Scott. He is also with Agriculture and Agri-Fruits Canada, but based out of the London Research and Development Center. Dr. Scott, Dr. Moffat, welcome to Tuber Talk. Great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting us to talk about our work. Thanks, Dylan. Happy to be here. And we're happy to invite you on to this week's episode. And it's not by chance that both of you are joining me today. It's actually by design because both of you are the head principal investigators or PIs on a research grant that was through the Canadian Potato Council with a specific insect in mind, and that's the Colorado potato beetle. So before we get into what your research has been over the last few years or so, first, let's lay down the groundwork for what insect that we're looking at. So Chandra, what is the Colorado potato beetle and how pervasive is it in Canadian potato growing regions? So the Colorado potato beetle, I mean, potato growers as well as home gardeners, they, they know this insect well. It's a cosmopolitan and very beautiful beetle. It's striped, has striped elytra or the back of it. So it kind of looks like a big ladybug with stripes. Uh, but whereas a ladybug would be a beneficial in your garden to eat insects that are causing damage, the Colorado potato beetle itself is the one that causes the problem. And so it's a voracious foliage feeder. And so if plants are not protected, usually insecticides are the only option. If plants are protected by insecticides, the beetle absolutely decimates the potato plant. So it eats all of the leaves. It even eats part of the stem. And it means that the potato plant can't photosynthesize. So it doesn't get uh, the products of photosynthesis, those sugars and starches to be able to create the tuber. So if, uh, if growers aren't able to protect their crop from this beetle, there really will be no crop. Um, the beetle itself, it, it's native to South and Central America, and it, it made its way up through North America. And so actually in Canada, it, it's an invasive species. And it, it not only feeds on potato where we mostly find it, but it actually really loves eggplant. And it can feed on other nightshades that might be uh, alternative hosts around the potato crop as well. Right. I mean, I've come across Colorado potato beetle and digging through my gardens numerous times. So it's uh, it's definitely quite abundant, even in just 
people's backyard home garden. So Ian, what makes the Colorado potato beetle such a critical pest? And uh, is it somewhat related to uh, maybe insecticide resistance? Uh, yes, that's a big part of it. I think as Kendra mentioned, the potato beetle has evolved or has adapted to its native host family. Uh, in order to do so, it detoxifies the defense compounds that are in the solanaceae, and these are mainly glycoalkaloids, very toxic compounds. So the potato beetles uh, already have this ability to, to metabolize these toxins and, and uh, get rid of them quickly. So it's believed that you know, their resistance to insecticides is also through similar mechanisms. So potato beetles, uh, when, when studies are done to look at the mechanisms, often they use, uh, the researchers will use sort of biochemical measures of different enzymes that are present in the insect, such as cytochrome P450s. And often these are the ones that are elevated and uh, help in the, the detoxification, not only of the plant toxins, but also many of the insecticides that are registered for their control. Yeah, it seems like just as, you know, maybe an insecticide seems like it's doing its job and doing what we want it to do, that these darn insects find a way to get around it. So, Shander, all this in mind, we have a very uh, serious and important insect pest and this subtle uh, kind of negative with insecticide resistance. So when you and Ian were trying to get this project together, what were what was the main objective that you were hoping that this project would address? So I, I like to, to tell this story because it's how Ian and I met and became collaborators. And so I was a new research scientist then at the Fredericton Center. And Ian had already been at the London Center for a few years and had developed a really wonderful uh, program in insect toxicology. And his work really laid the groundwork for a lot of the work uh, that we do in this project. But we... We had similar goals and so we brought our ideas together to really try to deliver the, the highest value to the potato industry and the stakeholders in Canada. So a few different things. So we've talked a little bit about insecticide resistance and so the Colorado potato beetle is widely distributed across Canada in the different potato growing regions. But we, we knew from some work out of the U.S. that likely the genetics of these beetles in different parts of the country were different, and that might influence how they respond to insecticides. As well, the management practices in different parts of Canada are different. The growing seasons are different. And so it was really important to us to be able to take a regional approach and ensure that as much as possible, we could provide results to growers across Canada. So really what we aimed to do first was to really strengthen a regional monitoring network across Canada. And so this was really building on some of the work that Ian had already done with CHC. So we, we developed um, this network and we have amazing partners in, in our partner provinces that work directly with the growers and growers associations to get us these collections of beetles that we then bring back to the lab. And so the first part of our project is really developing and strengthening this monitoring network. And then us back in the lab, looking at the variation in insecticide resistance across different populations of the beetle in these different growing regions of Canada. And so that's really the, the focal part of the work that, that Ian does. And I know he'll get into that a little bit later. 
But additionally, we wanted growers and growers associations to be able to access the data that we were developing. And so, and not have to wait for the data to come out in peer reviewed manuscripts and maybe not be in an accessible format. So one of the goals of our project was to develop this interactive mapping tool that stakeholders can go into and look at results of the project relevant to the regions that they live in and the insecticides they're interested in. At the same time, I mentioned that we had this idea that the genetics of the beetle would be different in different regions. And so we really wanted to dive deeper on that. And we use a couple of different approaches to, pr to try to better understand the genomic basis of insecticide resistance to different compounds and how that differs across Canada. And could we develop any further tools to try to really break down that insecticide resistance? Wow, that seems like your hands are full just going through for this entire uh, set out for research. So Ian, let's go back to what Shandra was talking about first with collecting sample populations and seeing how perhaps uh, insecticide resistance does change based on where the Colorado potatoes be is found. So could you go more into that research objective itself and how you went about uh, kind of exploring it? Uh, yes. Uh, so Chandra and I are both part of this five-year project and four years of collections have been completed up to this point. So starting in 2018, each summer uh, up until this past year, we were uh, organizing collections of data beetle populations in five provinces, Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, and Prince Edward Island were the participating provinces, mainly through their respective potato boards. So through contacts with the board, through the uh, potato industry, we were able to reach out and let uh, growers, extension people in each of the provinces and, and their potato growing regions know that we were interested in obtaining samples of uh, live beetles during the summer months in order to do uh, resistance bioassay testing in the lab. So each year we sent out a, a survey questionnaire along with a sampling kit. The sampling kit was basically just a, a box with small ice cream tub sized containers and instructions on how we wanted the potato beetles to be collected by, by their grower or the uh, extension person in the field. So if, if a, gr a grower found in their field that after they had uh, done an insecticide treatment, there were still sizable beetle populations, and they were then concerned that perhaps this might be due to reduction in susceptibility to the product by that population, or maybe even resistance, uh, we wanted them to collect beetles um, approximately 150 to 200 live adults or late instar larvae and ship those back to, to our lab. And not only London, the London lab where I'm situated was involved, but also the, uh, the lab in Fredericton, New Brunswick. So we basically split the country in, in, in two parts. The London labs took care of the Western populations and uh, the Fredericton lab took care of uh, Maritime in Quebec. So once we had those populations, we maintained the, the beetles, we uh, collected uh, larvae from the next generation for uh, these bioassays that we, we ran with the um, selected insecticide products. And I can go into more detail uh, about those if you would like. Yeah, for sure. Because I imagine that 
based on the growing boards and like how Chandra mentioned that there's different growing seasons and conditions that potato producers use across our province. So could you go more into detail for what kind of insecticides we're using and perhaps how these bioassays were actually conducted? Sure. So in, in consultation with, with the growers, with the horticulture council, uh, we selected products that were uh, commonly used by, by the growers, the ones that were registered here in Canada for potato beetle and the ones that were commonly used. So that, that took in, of course, the neonicotinoids such as uh, Actara and Titan, um, the uh, Spinosin products, Entrust and Delegate, and um, the anthranilic diamides, which were at the beginning of our project, the uh, Corrigin and the uh, Veramark. Uh, in the case of the, the diamides, over the course of the four years, we have made some adjustments, again, based on some of the feedback we were getting from growers because their less use of uh, Veramark was apparent and more uh, use of XRL, a foliar product, a foliar uh, diamide. So we uh, adapted to, to the needs of, of the potato growers in terms of what we were assessing in our bioassay. And the bioassays are using a, a very uh, young stage potato beetle larvae, second instar, so it's approximately four to five days after it hatches from the egg, still relatively small, but it does, it does represent, uh, at least it allows us to do a comparison of a field population larvae versus our laboratory strain or laboratory unexposed to insecticide strain of potato beetles. So we chose six products, two products from each of the three classes, six insecticides in total. Using the laboratory strain potato beetle, we developed a diagnostic concentration so we determine what concentration of each of those insecticides would cause mortality, high mortality, 90% to the lab strain. And then that concentration is what we use to screen for resistance in uh, larvae from each of the field populations. And as I said before, the work was done here in the London lab and uh, in Fredericton. So we maintained approximately 15 to 20 populations from, well, sorry, five populations from each province. Usually that meant, you know, 15 to 20 populations in total at each lab, and then uh, tested those with each of the six products throughout the summer period. That sounds like pretty extensive screening process. You know, you have so many different populations and then you're running six different products on all these different larvae. So uh, what were some of the results that you've kind of seen? I know the project is still going on, but I imagine you've kind of already seen some, I guess, differences in how populations are already reacting to the different insecticides that you're looking at. That's right. Yeah, we have seen some pretty interesting regional differences. I think at both sort of uh, eastern and western sides of the country, Alberta and Prince Edward Island appear to have populations of potato beetles that uh, remain susceptible to all of the products that we've so far tested with them. So in PEI, we've found that on average, the five or six populations that are sent to us, there's quite high mortality with each of the diagnostic concentrations that they've been tested with. Not as many populations have 
have come out of Alberta for us to, to do our tests with, but so far, same results. Uh, meanwhile, in Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, we have seen uh, reduced mortality with a number of products in each of the classes. For example, in I think Ontario, Manitoba, we've seen a fairly high number of the populations where resistance to one or both of the neonic, neonicotinoid products has been determined. In Quebec, there is the neonic resistance, but also we're seeing several populations where uh, resistance to spinosins is, is apparent as well. What's interesting, uh, some of the statistics that have been used to compare differences over the four years indicate that in almost all cases, there's very little change uh, in terms of the resistance levels in, in the, each of the provinces when we, when we pool all of the bioassay results together. So that's quite interesting that you're kind of seeing the differences in resistance, I guess, susceptibility in Ontario versus populations coming out of New Brunswick and PI. Just kind of looking forward a little bit, what are some of the implications that this might end up having for, let's say, a potato grower in Quebec versus a potato grower in in Alberta? I think, as Chandra mentioned earlier, that the information that we will be able to share with the growers, partially through uh, reports, but also through this mapping tool, will allow them to know, uh, you know, what are the, the particular resistance issue or problems that may be in their region. And that will help to inform them as to which products they should, they should choose for their, their beetle control uh, at the beginning of the season. It may not be specific to their field, but if uh, there's indications that resistance or reduced susceptibility to one product is is fairly prominent in their region, they might want to uh, use that that information to to select a product or a class of insecticides that you know is more likely to to perform against their the beetles in their field. Right. Exactly. You know choosing a more appropriate product that will actually do the work that you want it to do instead of leaving perhaps the, the, the potential for that population to become even more resistant with later right. uh, generations and the such. Yeah, it's part of, part of the, you know, the whole resistance management approach is knowing as much as you can ahead of time what, you know, which, which products are, are working and uh, you know, which ones to avoid and, and you know, to, to alternate through uh, the, the different products that are available. Right. So this kind of leads perfectly into uh, your next research objective, where now that we kind of have a better idea what how some of these populations or some of the classes of insecticides these populations might be resistant to, Chandra, how did you kind of go to find uh, perhaps molecular signatures that highlight their insecticide resistance? So similar to uh, how Ian and I got connected, there's there's wonderful expertise in Canada working on molecular signatures of different insect responses to, to different stressors. And so to an insect, an insecticide is, is merely one kind of stressor that it, it needs to detoxify. And so we, we look to collaborate with Dr. Cam Donnelly, who's also at the London Centre of AFC that works, he works closely with Ian, 
as well as Dr. Pierre Morin at the Université de Moncton. And so both of their labs, they use, they use different approaches, but they look at how we can look at the genomic signatures of stressors in insects and try to really determine what are the sort of the small pieces involved in this whole pathway of insecticide resistance. And so instead of looking at these fixed genetic differences, which some other studies have done, we're really looking at gene expression. And so they look at micro or, or, or messenger RNAs respectively, and they use some uh, different approaches like transcriptomics to really look at the expression of different RNAs that are upregulated or downregulated during the insecticide, the period where the insects are exposed, exposed to the insecticide. And so what both of these labs do is they take populations of the beetles that, uh, that we've already worked on and we've already determined that in this population, these ones are resistant and these ones aren't, and we can compare to our controls. And they can really look to associate these, these different genomic signatures, these up or up or down regulated transcripts with um, the insecticide resistance. And so by starting to look at the associations, they can identify particular candidate gene or gene regions that are involved in upregulating or downregulating these transcripts that assist the insect, or it's really the mechanism for the insect to be able to detoxify these compounds. And so right now we're really at the stage where Cam Donnelly and Pierre Morin have been able to identify these different candidate genes and gene regions. But we have some pretty exciting developments where um, Pierre Morin's group, they on just a pilot study-based approach, they looked at using uh, RNA interference technology to try to knock down these RNA transcripts that are involved in detoxification. They did this um, for some of the gene regions that are involved in breaking down neonicotinoid insecticides that are very widely used. And this is just in the lab, it's not in the field, but they're really able to almost reverse insecticide resistance by being able to halt the production of the different uh, microRNAs that are involved in the detoxification. So that work out of Pierre Morin's lab as part of our overall project, as well as, as Cam's work, um, he's identified certain candidate genes and is also working on RNA interference. And so we're really nearing the end of the project, but we have these two really promising uh, candidate tools that could, in another project, potentially be developed into an RNA interference-based type of, it's not a pesticide, but it'd be like a pest management tool. Right. So could you actually go just a little bit further, uh, just for our listeners, how, do, how does creating these RNAi tools uh, how could they be implemented, let's say, for a potato grower? Would it be some sort of spray? Would it be like a some some sort of uh, coating or something like that? Like mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. how would this technology actually be implemented? So there there are RNA interference uh, tools being implemented for other insect pests in other regions. There's a couple different ways that it uh, can happen, and this is it's not my wheelhouse, so I'll just do my best, but. There's the possibility to incorporate the the specific RNAs that would silence these genes into bacteria that can be used as a a foliar spray. And so that could be applied as a bacterial spray that would have a a very low active time on the plant. Um, And so it would have to be applied at the right times. There are also technologies and not sure it would be a great fit for potato, but where they can, these bacteria can that would express the RNAs can be integrated into the tissue of the plant. And so you wouldn't have to rely on a spray 
but it would be more like a systemic insecticide that would be part um, of the plant foliage. So those are two possible options down the road and it's a very big burgeoning area of research. So there's probably other potential delivery modes out there as well. Right, and hopefully someone listening, you know, that turns on the light in their brain and they start wanting to investigate this a little bit further. Uh, But just before we get going along here, Ian, I know that you were also looking at uh, um, perhaps a different way of identifying different molecular signatures, uh, and you took a proteomic approach. Could you go into kind of what that all entails? Sure. So as I, I mentioned before, one of the ways of investigating resistance mechanisms is to look at, you know, changes in the uh, the physiology of the of the insects, and and they measure that through biochemical measures. They measure it through uh, genetic changes, but they it's also possible to to look at it at uh, in terms of protein expression as well. And so uh, we were interested in seeing whether proteomic techniques could be applied to look for differences in proteins that were, are associated with, say, increased levels of certain enzymes. So we were using this approach to compare between a susceptible and a, a resistant potato beetle, resistant to uh, neonicotinoid insecticides. So um, yeah, it was, it was kind of an interesting experiment and it didn't work out exactly the way we thought because some of the protein, the stronger differences we were finding were not associated with the any of the, the detoxification enzymes, but they were uh, they seem to be more related to uh, the uh, proteins in the immune system of the of the beetle. And uh, this was kind of a novel, we thought it was a novel uh, finding. And it may have, you know, some useful applications down the road. Chandra spoke about RNAi as as one pest management tool uh, potentially uh, you know, coming out very soon. This could maybe be applied to, to uh, impact the immune system in these insects and make them more vulnerable to, to pathogens. So just a, a, different, a different way of kind of controlling them rather than maybe knocking out uh, some other critical function in their detoxification system or metabolism. Right. So even though that specifically your proteomic approach might not be developed into a tool itself, at least it's laying down the groundwork so that other people later on could perhaps look into uh, some of the proteins that you had identified or looked into. Yeah, I think we, we just wanted to explore the idea that there were, you know, there are other, other ways to, to come at the uh, understanding what's, what's happening in these, in these uh, resistant insects. For sure. So, and that's awesome that you were able to kind of take this more novel approach and look uh, more in depth into it. So lastly, I just want to touch on one other thing that Chandra had mentioned uh, at the beginning, and that's creating sort of a mapping tool or a network where producers and uh, stakeholders can actually go and look into where perhaps resistance is happening. So Shandra, could you talk a little bit more about this, like how it was developed and how really this will go ahead and assist growers as they get into the growing season? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the tool's actually been developed by a biologist at the Fredericton Center, Sheldon Han, and who has expertise 
in geographic information systems. And he's been working closely with the Agriculture Canada um, Agri-Geomatics team that already uh, has very high resolution mapping of uh, growing regions and uh, many different layers to their maps across Canada. They do the farm mapping every year. And so what Sheldon has been able to do is take some of those uh, mapping layers and then uh, create an independent uh, database and tool where we can overlay the results of our work. And so what it looks like is you can, you can look across Canada at all the provinces, you can start to zoom in and you can look by growing season or by the different insecticide. And we developed this stoplight system that's quite easy to interpret. So you can zoom in on your region. It doesn't give you uh, super specific information on exactly where, but we can look at your region and you can look to see how many samples have been done in the past few years, what insecticide products were tested. And then on this stoplight system, if it's a red light, then that means that the beetles that were exposed to those products, the majority of them were determined to be really resistant to that insecticide. A yellow light means that there's definitely a statistical loss of the susceptibility to the insecticide. So that's like a yellow light should be. It's a bit of a warning that we really need to probably pause use of this insecticide and really ensure that we're able, that we're rotating our chemistry or rotating into a different field to try to slow down the development of insecticide resistance. And a green light means that the beetles that were tested, um, they're still really quite susceptible to the product. And that's really good information to have too. I mean, growers, they know the importance best themselves um, of crop rotation and of rotating their, their chemistries. It's really important information to know that an insecticide is still providing really great power. And you do want to protect the use of that insecticide by continuing to, to rotate your chemistries. But the yellow light really indicates if we want to keep this product as a product that we're able to use, we, we definitely need to be able to rotate our chemistries and try something different. And the red light, it, it really means that you're not going to get protection using this product alone, and you're going to have to bring in other, other chemistries to be able to provide protection to your crop. That sounds incredibly awesome. Just the, the easy way to think about it, right? Interpreting what a grower needs to think about when they're choosing their chemistries or deciding if they are going to rotate uh, to a different product or not. So um when should potato producers expect to kind of be able to access this mapping tool or are some of the project partners kind of already getting an, an early glimpse into it? So we, we unveiled, uh, we've been giving updates at different meetings that we've been invited to present up. And so we're, we're really entering the last year of the project. So our plan is to do the soft releases with our project partners and really try to get it out to the, to the growers this year so that they're able to continue to access the results of our work. And, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to find a way to fund an extension of, of the project so that we can continue to do the, the screening work, which really is you know, very critical for growers in different regions to be able to continue to get updates on the patterns of insecticide resistance that they have in their regions. Because you know the point of doing this over time is to really be able to track changes and be able to see the early signs and be able to definitively know if, if a product fails and you get beetle damage to know whether that is the result of resistance or it might be an application or 
another kind of issue. And so we really hope to be able to continue the project so that we can keep putting the data in the hands of the growers. For sure. And I, and I hope that the project does get an extension to it because it does really sound like this work, uh, not only the work that you've been doing over the last couple of years will be uh, fantastic information, but going forward, just being able to look back and see how perhaps resistance might be changing in a specific population. Speaking of looking forward, uh, I know you guys have a couple more years within this project. So what are some of the outstanding questions or goals that you have in mind going forward into this growing season for 2022? We're entering the last year of the project. And yeah. so we're continuing to receive populations of the beetle that, that Ian and our counterpart, Dr. Jessica Crack and Fredericton, that they're doing the screening on that. And Ian probably has some more comments to share on that. But I'm so excited about the, the different results from the different molecular approaches that we've taken. I think there is real potential for development of new tools. Um, very exciting area of research, but it is an area that will need more investment. So being able to really dig in a bit further on the promise of RNA, I, RNA interference technologies to try to really thwart the development of insecticide resistance because with an insect like Colorado potato beetle, it's a moving target. If you, you know, whatever insecticide you throw at it, it's not a matter of if it's going to develop resistance, it's a matter of when it's going to be developed resistance. Um, and, you know, with changing values and changing information that we have about environmental impacts of insecticides, um, it's really important for growers to be able to hold on to insecticides that are not only effective, but are very low risk. And so a really important part of the work that we do is to try to be able to return that information so that the insecticides that are registered, that are effective, that are of low environmental risk stay as a potential tool for growers because some of the newer tools, they may not be as effective. I was just going to add that in terms of what we, what we will focus on this coming uh, in our last season, I think it it'll be somewhat directed by the the needs of the of the molecular uh, people on our team, such as Dr. Donnelly, Dr. Moran. There are populations that we've identified as being resistant over several seasons, and uh, those are the ones I think we'd like to follow up with, recollect at those locations, so that they can you know use the last season's beetle to confirm some of the. Uh, overexpression of certain genes, again, in those populations. Is it, is it consistent? Are there changes? So I think it's important to get this last uh, year of uh, information for their, for their part of the project. There may be opportunities to add one or two new uh, products from uh, different classes of insecticides, either products that growers may not be using that often but could still offer an, uh, an alternative product down the road or maybe, maybe even sooner if some of the, the ones that are currently registered are not working. And there may be opportunities to look at new chemistry that's in the, in the pipeline because we have interest from some of the agrochemical companies to explore, uh, to get some baseline information on, on efficacy of these new chemistries. Sounds like there's still a little bit more work to, to get done here in your last year. Yes. Uh, and, and, and as Chandra was saying, hopefully this will also lead into 
uh, either you know a renewal or some new funding uh, through a new project going forward. And I'm sure the the growers listening are also hoping that this fantastic work gets to continue on. And speaking of the growers, if they want to look into uh, some of your early results uh, from this project, or even just contact you guys and ask more questions of uh, what this kind of all means, where can they contact you? Well, if they if they go on to the Agriculture Canada website through the, uh, I think it's, is it uh, science uh, innovation part of that, they'll They'll uh, connect to links for each of the centers so they can they can find us through the London and Summerland and Fredericton research stations. Our, our contact, our email information is there. Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to get in touch by email. We both have uh, profiles on the Agriculture Canada science profiles. So you can you can check us out there and get in touch. Awesome. Well, Chandra, Ian, thank you so much for joining me today on Tuber Talk. This was fantastic information and just hearing about everything that you guys have been up to over the last few years. Thank you for your interest. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Tuber Talk, Canada's potato podcast. Catch up on all of our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts or online at potatoesincanada.com slash podcasts.